in an article best known for its title, Nothing in Biology Makes Sense Except in the Light of Evolution, Theodosius Stobjansky, American geneticist and one of the founders of the new synthesis of Darwinism and Mendelism, wrote, I am a creationist and an evolutionist. The idea that adhering to both ideas violates the law of non-contradiction is one of the stock tropes of those who claim that conflict is an inherent feature of the relation between science and religion. I address the falsity of that of the idea that such conflict is even a salient feature of their historical relationship in my recent book, The War That Never Was. In this lecture, I'll argue that there's no contradiction between two ideas sometimes said to be at the center of the alleged conflict. In June 1948, in a confidential memorandum urging Pope Pius XII to allow fellow Jesuit Pierre Théard de Chardin to publish Le Phénomène Humain, Bruno de Solage, then rector at the Institut Catholique de Toulouse, wrote that French Catholics were asking to be shown how a spiritualist evolutionism is possible. I do not share Dissolage's enthusiasm for Teilhard's evolutionism as a solution to that problem for reasons which I'll state in a moment. Nevertheless, while many Catholics are content merely to adopt Dobzhansky's compatibilist affirmation, Dissolage was right that it's important to be able to show, when called upon to do so, just how such a combination of Catholic doctrine, uh, the Catholic doctrine of creation and scientific accounts of evolution is possible. To do that, I'll do two things. The first is to show that the core ideas of evolution and, and uh, creation are not contraries. Since someone might say that even if there's no contradiction between the core ideas, at least the mo pl most plausible or most prevalent versions of the two ideas come into conflict, I'll conclude by showing <clears throat> that there is no incompatibility with respect to particular doctrines and, and, and theories. I'll begin with the concept of evolution, on which, first, I will argue that there's an important difference between the evolutionary theories that are the product of scientific research and the cosmic evolutionism that's a product not of scientific investigation, but rather of philosophical speculation. Second, I'll distinguish evolutionary theories as a kind of theory from other complementary kinds of theories and then distinguish various kinds of evolutionary theory that scientists have proposed. <clears throat> Finally, I'll say something about the limits of evolutionary theories about what they, they cannot do. For some people, the word evolution calls to mind not so much a scientific theory, but a grand worldview centered on what an early Darwin biographer described as a cosmical process, one and continuous from nebula to man, from star to soul, from Adam to society. A number of thinkers have advanced versions of such cosmic evolutionism. More or less materialistic versions were, were advanced by German biologist Ernst Haeckel and by English philosopher Herbert Spencer in the 19th century. A spiritualistic version was advanced by French Jesuit paleontologist Pierre Théard de Chardin in the 20th. What does cosmic evolutionism look like? The details vary, of course, from one version to another. Spencer wrote that evolution is a change from an indefinite, incoherent homogeneity to a definite, coherent heterogeneity. <clears throat> Later, he added that there is one evolution going on everywhere after the same manner. 
There are not many metamorphoses similarly carried on, but there's a single metamorphosis universally progressing wherever the reverse metamorphosis has not set in. Louvain theologian Jacques-Joseph Lemine died in 1924, addressing Spencer's evolutionism in a long work published shortly after Spencer's death, objected to the idea of a universe carrying out a single evolution, of which all particular evolutions are only episodes, pointing out that an aggregate of evolutions does not necessarily make up an evolutionary whole. <clears throat> in particular, he wrote, that the Earth has become more heterogeneous in virtue of differentiation of society that lives on its surface in no way implies that the differentiation had anything to do with the evolution of the globe itself. <clears throat> that was Lamine. And T.R. Franz Hurt, a Jesuit moral theologian from the Gregorian University and a consultor at the Holy Office, must have had Teilhard's evolutionism in mind when, as a member of the commission appointed to prepare what eventually became the encyclical Humani Generis, he included in a proposed list of theses to be condemned the idea that one single, universal, and continuous evolution reigns supreme in every field of life and science, an evolution in which some primordial and fundamental being going from state to state by its own power over the course of the ages, evolves into some kind of single collective organized being in which all individuation is absorbed. So, in developing those worldviews, Heckel, Spencer, and Tayar went far beyond drawing scientific conclusions from observational evidence. To the extent that an evolutionary history of the cosmos can be told as a scientific story, it's not so much the story of one continuous process, as Lamine already emphasized a century ago, as it is a composite of distinct but connected uh, or connectable theories from the Big Bang through a somewhat Laplacian theory of the origin of the solar system and a somewhat Lyellian geology to an, uh, to an as yet undeveloped account of the origin of life and a somewhat Darwinian account of the origin of species. <clears throat> it's these theories to which I'll give the bulk of my attention. The first step in bringing the scientific use of the concept of evolution into focus is clarity about the concept of a theory. So what exactly is a theory? The word theory uh, is, of course, used in lots of ways. The word is sometimes used to distinguish what would happen if it were not for real-world complications, theory versus practice. It's sometimes used to distinguish untested or tentative ideas from those that have been tested to the satisfaction of more or less everyone competent to judge, theory versus fact. However, however much scientists may sometimes use the word in one or the other of those senses, the proper scientific use distinguishes explanation or explanandum from explanation. Nobel laureate Sheldon Glashow gave us what we need, a theory that physicist said, is a logical system of ideas that ties together a large number of observations of the real world into a coherent and understandable pattern. <clears throat> it's not so much descriptive, this is me again, it's not so much descriptive as are facts, it's explanatory. Einstein's general theory of relativity was as much a theory after the confirmatory observations of 1919 as it had been before. And Darwin's theory of evolution remains a theory after a century and a half of confirmatory observations, not because it might fail a next attempt at falsification, but because it attempts to explain observed facts. 
However much it might be a fact in the sense of having one general scientific acceptance, it remains a theory in the sense of being explanatory and justified by its explanatory power. <clears throat> the next step in understanding the idea of evolution is to distinguish two basic kinds of theories. Synchronic theories that explain how the world or some particular part of it works, and diachronic theories that tell us how the world or some particular part of it got to be the way it is. Synchronic theories include an account of a structure and the laws governing the behavior of its structural elements. When the structure is clear enough, as in the case of the solar system, the salient feature of the theory is the set of laws that it posits. Newtonian mechanics does this for planets, as well as for projectiles, colliding bodies, and much else. Maxwell's electrodynamics does the same work for electrical and magnetic phenomena. These could be called law-positing or nomothetic explanations. Sometimes, however, it's the structure that's not clear. John Dalton's atomic theory of matter, explaining the laws of chemical combination by extension the gas laws, by positing molecular structure, exemplifies another kind of synchronic theory, structural explanation. Evolution, defined as, a, as changing gene ratios in a population, can, to be sure, be seen as a synchronic theory, as population genetics. There, the Hardy-Weinberg principle, that in an infinite population with random mating and without mutation, selection or migration, gene ratios remain constant, that principle is a counterpart of Newton's first two laws of motion. Change in gene ratios, like variations in the speed or direction or the direction of motion, indicate that something is disturbing the system. Presenting evolutionary theory in this way is adequate to the task of using it to explain, say, industrial melanism, but it does seem rather to leave to one side much of what many people see as the most interesting claim of the theory of evolution. If not the transition from molecule to man, then at least that from microbe to mastodon. The more traditional way of thinking about how the theory of biological evolution contributes to our understanding of the world is focused on explaining the facts at the heart of comparative anatomy, biogeography, and paleontology by reference to, to history. Why are whales in, in so many ways more like bats than they are like sharks? You can see this already on the, uh, if you look at the, uh, at the, the skeletal structure there, or or uh, there, in case you didn't think that bats and whales really are like. Uh, why are so? Why are whales in so many ways more like bats than they are like sharks, and bats more like uh, moles than they are like birds? <clears throat> why do new species come into existence? Coincident both in space and time with pre-existing closely allied species? Why does biological taxonomy so neatly place groups within groups as an account of chemical elements by contrast does not? Why are there a quarter of a million different kinds of beetles? The answer to all these questions is that species originate by descent with differential modification from earlier species. The attempt to recast the theory of biological evolution as a synchronic theory might appeal to the Procrustians among us, but for many purposes, the theory is better brought into focus by seeing it as an example of an entirely different pattern. 
Diachronic theories, in which Darwin's is only one instance, have as their explanation, as their explanandum, not phenomena, planetary motion, chemical combination, or the behavior of gases, but diversity. Louvain priest cosmologist Georges Lemaitre, one of the originators of the Big Bang Theory, characterized this kind of theory, one for which 19th century philosopher William Hewell coined the term paleoetiological theories as follows. The purpose of any cosmogonic theory is to seek out ideally simple conditions which could have initiated the world and from which, by the play of recognized physical forces, that world in all its complexity may have resulted. Notre Dame priest philosopher Ernest McMullen, who was a student at Louvain when Lemaitre was on the faculty there, quote what I think is the same point in slightly different terms. Evolutionary explanation on his account is the attempt to explain diversity by postulating an earlier, different, and simpler stage from, what the pre from which the present diversity developed in an intelligible way. Complexity is, after all, a diversity of parts. There are various ways in which diversity and complexity can be produced, and so diachronic theories like synchronic ones come in various forms. Descent with modification, Darwin's usual name for his theory, is one kind of diachronic theory, a kind in which there are other instances in linguistics, uh, the very same pattern that Darwin used to explain similarity and diversity of living organisms, As, uh, as there, was used to explain the similarity and diversity of, of, of languages, French and Romanian, Romance languages and Slavic ones, Italo-Celtic ones and Indo-Iranian ones. Of course, the process of descent and modification differ in the two cases, the inheritance of acquired characteristics to the despair of linguistic purists is a central feature of historical linguistics, but it's generally blocked by the Weissman barrier uh, between the germ lines and somatic cells of biological species. And there are other kinds of diachronic theories. If instead of asking what goes on four legs in the morning, two during the day and three in the evening, the Sphinx had asked, why do some human beings walk on four legs, others on two, and the rest on three, Thebes would have been a safer place to visit. The identification of different kinds of a given thing as different stages in a process of change is a second possible explanation of diversity. Charles Darwin used it to explain the diversity of coral reefs. Fringing reefs, barrier reefs, and islandless atolls are three stages in the course of island subsidence. In the early 1900s, an idea of uh, Einar Erdsprung and Henry Norris Russell plotting the temperature of stars against their luminosity laid the foundation for an evolutionary explanation of the diversity of stars. Hot, luminous red giants become yellow stars of intermediate temperature and luminosity, which in turn, as they burn out, become dark, cool, white dwarfs. The diversity of coral reefs and of star types is explained by the fact that some reefs or stars are older than others and have progressed further through the sequence. Jean-Baptiste Lamarck, uh, Jean-Baptiste Lamarck tried unsuccessfully to explain the diversity of biological species the same way. Continuous, spontaneous generation of microbes with the gradual emergence of more complex organisms among the descendants of the first generated organisms over the course of time. 
The diversity of biological species is a consequence of some species, for example, snakes, being more generations removed from their foundational spontaneously generated earliest ancestors than are others, for example, worms. And the point of the uh, it was, as I said a moment ago, an unsuccessful attempt to apply the that pattern to to uh, that explanandum. The point of the various of the variety of explanatory patterns of diversity having been made, I'll not explore further whether other instances of diversity of atomic nuclei, of rocks, or of planets, or other diachronic theories, for example, cosmogony, can be fitted into one of these patterns, or whether those require or are examples of completely different patterns. The two forms just distinguished are sufficient to show us two things. The first is that all the, all the various theories will have to be linked to one another in a natural history of the world's various features. The expansion of the primeval atom must lay the foundation for the emergence of galaxies, stars, and planets. Some of the planets so produced must in turn be suitable for the emergence of living things, etc. And in a, uh, that, that history of the world does not have the kind of unity, unity posited by Spencer or Tayar and criticized by Levine and Hurt. Indeed, even in one important component of the natural history of the world, nucleosynthesis, they do not work in the same way. The lighter nuclei, deuterium, helium, and lithium, having been produced within the first few minutes of the Big Bang, with the heavier nuclei only produced rather later and by a different process. The second thing we can see from thinking about those various kinds of, 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 of theories is that what evolutionary theories do is to explain how one state of the world is transformed or transforms itself into another state. The primeval atom into galaxies, the biotic soup into microbes, a swarm of microbes into a herd of mastodons. Each theory presupposes a starting point, the origin of which it does not explain. Darwin presupposed he did not attempt to explain the existence of living things. Those who have tried to explain their existence, from Lamarck to Aparin to Stanley Miller, presuppose some kind of biotic soup. And Lemaitre's account of the observed structure of the universe presupposed the existence of the primeval atom. What evolutionary theories can do is important and interesting, but such theories are limited in two ways. First, I just made the point that evolutionary theories do not explain the nature or even the existence of their starting points. Even when that starting point is explained as the product of another evolutionary theory, the sequence itself at least seems to have a starting point that's beyond the reach of evolutionary explanation. Even an infinite concatenated sequence of such theories presupposes the existence of the material world, as well as the powers or laws by which it evolves. All that, by their very nature, they can do, those evolutionary theories, is to describe transformations of things that already exist. Second, an account of the evolutionary processes that transform one state of the material world, stars or fauna, into another, can never explain the origin of non-material things. <clears throat> it cannot explain the existence or diversity of angels. That limitation has implications for anthropogenesis to which I'll return later in the talk. These are not merely gaps in the history of the material world as the origin of well-adapted biological species was once thought to be. The difference between nothingness and a material world is not a gap. 
neither is the difference between the material world and the spiritual world, not between matter and angels, and not the point to which I will return between human brains and human souls. So, creation. The fact that God created the world is the second thing we're told about him in the Apostles' Creed. It's indeed the first thing we're told about him in Scripture itself. But somewhere, or, but somewhat, as there is not a theory of evolution, but theories of evolution, one for the cosmos, one for the solar system, one for living things, etc. So there's not one doctrine of creation, but three. One each for the material world as a whole, the angels, and each individual human soul. A focus here on the two products of creation, uh, which have some uh, relevance to the theory of evolution the creation of the material world and of human souls, leaving aside the question of angels. So what is creation? <clears throat> Sometimes the term is used rather loosely to refer to any account of the origins of things. Anti-evolutionist philosopher William Dembski once wrote that materialism requires an evolutionary creation story to keep it afloat. This, I think, is a rather careless use of the term. Creation is just one kind of origin, and it will therefore contribute to clarity to use the term creation precisely rather than broadly. We Christians must be care must carefully safeguard the names of our religious concepts against semantic drift, and we should object when the term creation is extended to include other competing accounts, just as we must object when it's narrowed to include only anti-evolutionist accounts of, of, of creation. If origin is the genus, What's the specific difference? What makes creation different from other kinds of origin? Dictionaries are not entirely helpful here. The Oxford English Dictionary offers two possible answers and two different definitions, divine action and ex nihilation. Perhaps that is descriptively correct. Reference to divine action alone when students of mythology use the term creation myths to refer to or uh, to refer even to origin stories which do not include exnihilation, that is, creation out of nothing. References to something like exnihilation alone when we use the term creativity, even if analogously, to emphasize the originality of new artistic compositions or scientific ideas. A systematic account must begin with the idea of bringing something into being out of nothing. The idea that creativeness defined as the production of a thing in regard to its whole substance from its own non-being and not from any pre-existing thing is a feature of everything other than uh, uh, other than God. Uh, that it is such a feature is both Catholic doctrine and a thesis that St. Thomas and others thought could be proved by natural reason. Christian philosophers have also long held that no creature can from its own power create something ex nihilo, since creating something from nothing shows an infinite power, a power that no creature has. For those, from those two premises, it follows that, uh, uh, that, that God created the world. We can combine the two propositions into a composite core thesis of the doctrine of creation. The world was made by God, ex nihilo. We'll understand the core thesis better if we know four distinctions. First, 
Creation in the sense of annihilation is clearly different from the concept of design that has been the focus not only of pre-evolutionists such as John Ray and William Paley, but also of contemporary anti-evolutionists like Michael Behe. One can imagine God, like Plato's demiurge, imposing design on matter that he did not create. One can also imagine God implementing, that is, bringing into existence, a design thought up by someone else. To claim that the world was created is therefore a claim different from and stronger than the claim that it was designed. Second is a distinction emphasized by English Catholic biologist St. George Mever, one of the earliest Catholic defenders of the idea of an evolutionary origin of species. He called the concept of creation defined above absolute creation, leaving room for a second concept of derivative creation, the formation of anything by God from preceding matter, which has been created with a potentiality to evolve from it under suitable conditions, all the various forms it subsequently assumes. God created everything, but not in the same sense. The material world as a whole and individual human souls, he created directly or absolutely, but human bodies and particular animals, he created only derivatively. The derivative creation plays an important role in the formational economy of the material world is a central thesis of what Belgian priest geologist Henri de Dorlodeau called Christian naturalism. And he expressed this as a methodological norm, as a tendency to attribute to uh, the, the natural action of secondary causes, all that's not excluded therefrom, either by reason or the positive data of the natural sciences, now recourse to a special divine, interve divine intervention distinct from God's general governing activity, only if it's absolutely necessary to, to do so. Mervyn and Dorlado deployed, deployed these ideas in the context of the emergence of a Catholic evolutionism, but the ideas are not original with them. They have deep roots in mainline Catholic theology and nature. Third, exnihilation is distinct from creation at the beginning of time, creation ab initio temporis. We need to note four points that Thomas made about that additional thesis. First, it's a revealed truth, a point in which Christian theologians were in general agreement. Second, it cannot be proven by natural reason, although it was a point on which Christian theologian it's different among themselves. Third, it's conceptually different from creatio ex nihilo. Creatio ex nihilo is an ontological claim, not as creatio ab initio temporis is a chronological one. Fourth, it's uh, logically different from creatio ex nihilo. Even of a world with no beginning in time, one would have to ask whether that world was self-existent or dependent for its existence on some other being. This point is easily missed. Many people think first of a sequence of events when they think about cause and effect. On this billiard ball or billiard table model of causality, an earlier event, say a collision of one billiard ball into another, causes another subsequent event, say the motion of a hitherto stationary ball. Not all causality is of this type. On a second slippery floor model of causality, the floor is slippery because it's wet. 
It might be slippery because someone spilled water on it, making it slippery, even though it had not been slippery before. But the transition from dry to wet is not necessary to the wetness being the cause of the slipperiness. If the floor had existed from all eternity and had been wet and slippery from all eternity, the wetness would still be the cause of the slipperiness. The wetness would not be chronologically prior to the slipperiness, but it would still be the, the cause. Non-being might be analogically prior to being, even in something that had existed for all eternity. Finally, creation is at least conceptually distinct from the doctrine of divine creation. The idea that God keeps all created things in existence. An alternative idea captured in the image of a divine watchmaker imagines a world that once created continues in being on its own by existential inertia. No more dependent on God for its continued existence than is a watch on its maker. This is sometimes called deism, though it does not seem to be a feature of the 18th century theology that went under that name. It was explicitly rejected in the Roman Catechism published in the wake of the Council of Trent. We are not to understand that God is in such wise the creator and maker of all things that his works, when once created and finished, could therefore continue to exist unsupported by his omnipotence. For unless preserved continually by his providence, they would instantly return to their nothingness. So the correct image is not uh, that of a watchmaker in his watch, but of the king in his dream in Lewis Carroll's Through the, through the Looking Glass. There, uh, Tweedledum and Tweedledee tell Alice that she is only a sort of thing in the king's dream. And then if he left off dreaming about her, she'd go out, bang, just like a candle. That's how it is with God and creatures. We can emphasize this by saying that God conserves his creatures in being, but that according to St. Thomas, but that according to St. Thomas is only a different way of conceiving the act of creation. The doctrine of divine conservation shows how deeply mistaken William Jennings Bryan was when he said that the theistic evolutionist puts God so far away that he ceases to be a present influence in life. The theses just identified do not exhaust the content of the doctrine of creation. We can add to them both a set of supplementary theses that tell us more about God's creation of the world and, uh, and theses from the larger theological context in which the doctrine of creation is embedded. Many of them are to be held as matters of faith, de fide, though a few are perhaps only theologically certain. One, like the doctrine of creatio ab initio temporis, is strictly speaking descriptive of the world without being particularly theological. Uh, that additional one of that type is the world is a good world. Others are fairly directly theological in content, such that uh, uh, God was moved by his goodness to create the world. The world is the work of divine wisdom. The world was created for the glorification of God. Still others come from a larger theological context and a kind of divine action of which creation is just one kind. There are other kinds of divine action, such as miracles and the bestowal of grace. The general doctrine of the nature of divine action will, therefore, add to our understanding of creation. Some connect the doctrine of creation with uh, that of the, the Trinity. All the extra activities of God are common to the three persons. 
which makes divine persons one single common principle of creation. Others begin with the fact that the fact of uh, divine wisdom, from which we get three more theses, that God created it from exterior, free from exterior compulsion and inner necessity, that God was free to create this world or any other, and that given his choice to create a world, God had to create a good world. There's no time to explore all these doctrines in a single lecture. My point in mentioning them here is to show how full, how a fuller understanding requires a focus neither on blood clotting cascades and bacterial flagella, nor on the evolutionary theories produced by modern science, but rather on a larger system of theological ideas. We can get a deeper understanding of the Christian account of the origin of the world and its contents by contrasting it with some of the contrary accounts of uh, that have been on offer over the course of intellectual history. Those uh, do not, I have argued, include scientific theories of evolution. They do include ideas like these. The world always existed. It came into existence by emanation of God. The material world was, was uh, created by an evil spirit, or it came into being spontaneously out of out of out of nothing. Uh, both Aristotle and Democritus were eternalists, which, if it did not explicitly deny the createdness of the world for reasons I mentioned above, at least challenges a related idea also important to the fuller Christian accounts of origins. Plotinus, along with other Neoplatonists, was an emanationist. Although some perfectly orthodox Christian writers use the term emanation. As a genus of creation, the term is now usually used to name an alternative to the idea of creation, one that adds to the orthodox idea that God uh, is transcendent. Two other ideas. First, that between God and the world stands a series of intermediate beings, the mind, soul, individual souls, matter, each in some sense lower than the one from which it emanated and higher than one from which it emanate, which emanates from it. And second, the idea that each grade of being other than God comes into being by a necessary process of emanation from a higher preceding entity in the series. Those ideas make emanationism different from creationism in two important respects. First, the series of intermediate beings between God and the material world puts more distance between God and that world than is compatible with the biological theory, of, or sorry, with the bi biblical theory with biblical theology of nature and understanding of providence. For some emanationists, so not for Plotinus, the material world is so far removed from God as actually to be evil. Second, the conception of emanation as a necessary process stands in sharp contrast to the Christian doctrine that creation is a free divine act. The ancient uh, Persian religious thinker Mani gave us the creator demon, on the creationist account of the origin of the material world, it makes sense to say, as did C.S. Lewis, God likes matter, he invented it. On Mani's alternative, that doesn't make sense. Finally, some modern atheists in their desperation sound a lot like spontaneous ex-nihilationists. Although, as John Barrow and Frank Tipler have pointed out, the modern picture of the quantum vacuum differs radically from the classical and everyday meaning of, the, of a vacuum nothing. To the extent that this putatively, or this putative anti-creationism is based on science, it's not really ex-nihilationist at all. It's merely transformist. The doctrine of creation in denying all these alternatives, therefore, did and does real work, even if it's silent about, say, the exact origin of starfish, bacteria, flagella, 
or blood clotting cascades. General conflict between the doctrine of creation itself in a precise sense of the term and any scientific theory of evolution is precluded by uh, considerations discussed above. Still, lest anyone accuse me of uh, uh, of evading real conflicts by artful definition, I want to conclude my talk by looking briefly at some particular allegations of conflict between modern science and theological ideas about the origin of the world or its constituents that are at least in the neighborhood of the doctrine of, 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 of creation. I'm looking at the, the clock, I had a little something to say about three points, the origin of the, uh, of the universe uh, and second, the uh, origin of biological species. But uh, because of the limits on time, I'm just going to take up the, the third. If somebody wants to hear the others, you can ask in the questions or I can uh, send you what I what I wrote. So the third is the most complicated question. I think it's easy to show that there's no problem uh, with uh, uh, in the case of the origin of the universe or biological species. But uh, with regard to the origin of man, there are two points that need consideration is man's animal origins and monogenesis. Darwin's extension of his theory of evolution to man depended crucially on his argument that every human power can be found uh, in inchoate form in at least some animals. Here, Darwin failed to recognize two aspects of human behavior that point to a power completely unlike anything found in animals. Both can only belong to a being that has. Uh, and at least partially immaterial principle of life, a rational soul. The first is conceptual and not merely perceptual thought. Human beings can form not only the image of a three-sided figure, but the concept of an unimaginable thousand-sided one. Not only the image of a snake, but the concept of a cold-blooded animal. A.R. Wallace, impressed though he, uh, though he was by the ability of natural selection to reshape plants and animals in response to environmental pressures, rightly pointed out that certain human powers, for example, the intellect, which made possible the development of higher mathematics, were simply beyond the reach of that process. St. Thomas argued for a stronger claim that they were also beyond the reach of any purely material being. The second feature of human behavior is free will. The idea that human actions are free from determination by accidental states of our brain and our circumstances, freedom even from determination by our character, can be the result of deliberate choice. Uh, um, that's in one sense a more radical challenge to 19th century determinism than is, than is quantum indeterminacy. That kind of freedom is not the kind of power that material beings can possess. Darwin's extension of his theory therefore fails. However much it can explain the origin of the human body, it cannot explain the origin of the human race. A better account was offered by Mivert, who posited the evolutionary origin of the first human body, one into which God infused a rational soul, just as he does for, uh, for, for every uh, human being at zygosis. Darwinian evolutionary theory also includes a stronger presumption in favor of the origin of biological species being an entirely new population rather than a single couple. As German Darwinist Ernst Haeckel wrote, uh, no first human couple or first man ever existed, just as there was never a first couple or a first individual Englishman or German. That presumption of, of Darwin is supported by genetic evidence 
of, of similarities in allelic variation in man and chimpanzees. Uh, the number of distinct alleles at the locus in question is too large to have passed through a bottleneck of two individuals. Uh, the Catholic doctrine of original sin does not or does require that there be precisely two human beings who are the ancestors of all other human beings. But the apparent contradiction can be resolved by making a distinction between biologically human beings, of which an entire population evolved from an earlier pre-human population, and a subset of that population, namely philosophical theological human beings, the product of, an of the infusion of a created rational soul that transforms a merely biologically human being into a fully human being. If God infused such a soul first into just two individuals, a single couple, out of that larger population, and then into all or at least most of the descendants of that original full fully human couple, and if those descendants continue to, to some extent to interbreed with their larger biologically human population with whom they were interfertile, then human phylogenetic history would conform to the demands of both science and, and, and theology. So, by way of, of conclusion, theories of evolution and the doctrine of creation, including such supplementary doctrines as creatio ab initio temporis, and monogenesis, as long as each is kept within the bounds set by its, its method, are entirely compatible with one another. No scientific account of the evolutionary processes that, that shape our material world can fully explain either the existence of that material world or the origin of things that have a non-material component, as human beings do. The theory of the evolutionary origin of biological species must respect the philosophically establishable and theologically confirmed fact of human exceptionalism. Theological counts of creation must be careful not to entangle the doctrine itself with the narrative or theoretical circumstantiae, such as the six days of creation or the Big Bang, that typically accompany elaborations of the doctrine. The apparent suitability of such auxiliary de details for a fuller exposition of an account of creation does not make the details themselves tenets of revealed truth. The doctrine itself must be distinguished from a larger account of the origin of the world and its components, uh, which uh, exposition of the doctrine from the composition of Genesis until today seems inevitably to require. <laughs>